Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And well, I'd, I'd say welcome to spring. <laughs> Most of us had a storm line go through Wednesday evening that certainly uh, uh, called out the beginning of spring and we're fortunate to have our full panel this beautiful spring morning. Claire Zauke, our healthcare director is with us. Claire, great to have you. Thank you, good to be here, Matt. Awesome, and Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Good morning, everyone. So, it is spring, which means changes. Things are happening. We're in full bloom, and uh, we have news to announce uh, this week on the Battleground Wisconsin uh, as it relates to this show, and that is that uh, Claire Zauke, this will be your last official show as a panelist on the Battleground Wisconsin, because Claire, you are moving on to a really important new role. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, exciting change in your life? Yeah, thanks, Matt. This is definitely bittersweet. Uh, working with Citizen Action has been uh, maybe the best job I've ever had. It's just, it's been so wonderful. Um, but I um, was presented with an opportunity to join the new mayoral administration here in Milwaukee. And um, I just couldn't turn it down um, because it's an opportunity to, to get on the ground floor of a new administration serving the city that I love. Um, and uh, it's, it's something I'm, I'm excited about. So it's, you know, it's bittersweet. Uh, but yes, yes, it is, <laughs> but, but it'll be good. It'll be good. Well, Claire, congratulations. Um, uh, very excited for you about this. This is, um, this is, uh, we talked about this right after it's, there is not a person more perfectly suited, trained, uh, everything for this position that you're, you're going to do in, in the administration. And, and for folks, uh, last week, we talked about what a huge historic opportunity um, Chevy Johnson administration will have to, to make some change in the city. Uh, it's been 18 years. And so Claire, uh, it's just fabulous uh, that you're gonna have an opportunity to do something uh, historic in, in the city that you love. Uh, so congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna miss Battleground Wisconsin a lot. Well, you know, we <laughs> may call you uh, for some information, maybe guest panelists here and there. But yeah, no, really, we we really appreciate everything that you've done, and as the host of this show, that you came on and you've been such a great panelist and consistent panelist. It's just been great. Robert, your thoughts to, for for Claire. Well, we're going to miss her, but we know that what's happening in Milwaukee with the new administration is very important. So uh, we're also very happy. I'm very happy for the opportunity Claire has and how and for the very smart choice the mayor and his team is making in, in terms of staff hires, though it, it's difficult for us. We have trouble replacing Claire. There is no replacement for Claire. They're just people that to lead some of the some of the same programs. Uh, but obviously, we're interested in creating a much more just and equitable Milwaukee, and Claire being where she's going and city government is is helpful to that cause. Well, Claire, we're going to put you to work for one final time here on this podcast because we have a number of things to talk about. And, and uh, But uh, congratulations, and uh, we will miss you. 
But Claire, I'm going to come to you first because um, there was a big, there's big news. Uh, everyone knows we care deeply about climate justice and what's happening. And, and we talk often about the climate genocide we face and how it's this, this, uh, this moment provides us with an opportunity not only to address that just amazing historical problem, but also to address the serious economic issues we have and structural racism we have in our current economy. And this is a chance to address that and create a new economy while doing that. And Claire, there's big news this week coming out of uh, the Evers administration and uh, the uh, PSC has wants to use the state's energy efficiency program to actually lower carbon emissions and address climate change, which seems like a no brainer, but sounds like this is going to be controversial. Claire, this is this is a big deal to start actually trying to implement and address uh, what we face. Your thoughts on on uh, what the PSC and where we're headed here with this energy efficiency program. Yeah, so um, the focus on energy program out of the governor's administration is designed, and I'm sure Robert will talk much more about this and whether it's enough or not and how it fits into the greater context of uh, the fight against climate change. Um, but it is generally aimed at um, trying to use um, renewable energy and to reduce energy consumption, um, to, to have greater energy efficiency um, in the state. And um, so, for example, um, the PSC, which is the Public Service Commission, um, the, the governmental body that regulates um, uh, energy and utilities in the state, uh, voted two to one, um, which I'll make a little plug here to say, you know, if if we had a Republican governor, for example, there's no way that the appointments would be skewed two to one towards um, supporting climate change mitigation. So another reason why we need to fight for um, Tony Evers to be to be reelected. Um, so they voted uh, two to one um, in favor of the focus on energy program, and it'll do things like um, put a $100 million program in place to work with residents and businesses to install cost-effective uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy projects. Um, and um, so that's, uh, that's something that people can um, maybe start being able to do in their homes on a bigger scale and that businesses can start uh, tapping into for funds to, to make appropriate upgrades. So um, this is uh, this is exciting, um, especially because, um, as you know, the, the legislature doesn't really support funding projects like these and, in fact, took many out of the state budget this last time around. Well, and that seems to be what, uh, what might be, shall we say, uh, the problem here that uh, the, the one member of the PSC who voted against it essentially was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't see that this should be a priority for us, which just seems crazy. But Robert, the legislature, the Republican legislature seems to agree with that member. And um, my assumption is we haven't heard the last from them on this, Robert. Uh, no, not at all. Now, focus on energy. It's been around for a while. The folks who used to give you those coupons to, to get cheaper fluorescent lights back in the day, back in the incandescent light era. Um, it's terribly underfunded. It's $100 million a year. It has a huge economic benefit, at least five to one for every dollar invested. And 
That's because we've had administrations, the Walker administration, that didn't give a darn about the climate crisis. And like much of the, like the whole Republican Party has its ostrich head in the sand over the deadline we face in 2030. So Governor Everts had proposed doubling funding for Focus Energy to $200 million, which is a very modest proposal that was rejected. But as soon as the two PSC commissioners who, yes, Claire, they are the Evers appointees, uh, voted to use our energy conservation program to also reduce carbon, which seems to make sense, given that the whole point here is, is that we need to uh, prevent a climate, runaway climate change and a climate disaster, and that we have a short, relatively short deadline. Well, this both was opposed by the Walker appointed commissioner. And then a, we, got, we got a letter uh, for, uh, to the PSC from uh, two state legislators, Senator Julian Bradley, who's chair of the Senate Committee on Utilities and Representative Mike Kuglich, who's chair of the Assembly Committee on, on Energy, claiming that the PSC does not have the authority to do any of this uh, and that the legislature should be left to do it. Of course, they also point out they rejected Evers' proposals before, so I guess they We'll have to see when are they going to when Claire and Matt when are they going to start working on the climate crisis and decarbonization? Yes, they have no interest. Yeah, that, 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 uh, that, that comment's a joke. And they're threatening basically to take the funding away in the next budget. And as you know, even if Governor Evers wins re-election, he still can't really do anything that doesn't get through them in the budget process if they successfully re-gerrymander the maps, which both the U.S. Supreme Court Trump majority and the state Supreme Court seem to be uh, hard at work on right now, though it's not final. So this is, look, we, we need to be much cleaner on this. Uh, progressives and Democrat candidates go into elections and say, I'm for investing in a green economy and addressing climate. The top public issue, according to UW-Madison non-political polling in Wisconsin, we're not saying the opponent if you're talking about a Republican incumbent, doesn't it does not act as if and does not believe there is a climate crisis and is a climate denier and he's risking the future of the country and leaving huge economic benefits and job creation benefits on the table that could greatly benefit this district and the whole state. But we're just not clean and clear on that. We're all mushy and therefore the public is not provided a clear choice. And by the way, you're not helping voters if voters don't understand a clear contrast. And I mean a substantive one. I don't mean these ridiculous debates about who raised taxes and who didn't or who was not strong enough on a, on a sex, uh, sex crime case than someone else, if you're talking about judicial elections or AG elections. I mean real issues, folks. And this is a real issue people care about. With that, folks, we're going to take our first break you're listening to the battleground wisconsin we're citizen action you can find us all over the socials which means we're on facebook we're on twitter or excuse me we're on musketer and we're on instagram we'll be right back welcome back to the battleground wisconsin for citizen action of course you can find us at citizenactionwi.org you know a few of the things we were just talking about are problems around uh, the, the Republicans versus Democrats uh, is directly related, we know, and we've talked about it, to redistricting, gerrymandering, really determines uh, what the legislature looks like. 
Um, and we want to talk a little bit, dive in a little bit on the congressional maps in particular. Um, we know we're still waiting on the legislative maps. We're waiting on the state Supreme Court to uh, rule following uh, the federal Supreme Court saying there were issues with our state ledge map. So we're still on a holding pattern on those, uh, but wanted to talk about an article that um, appeared in the journal Sentinel that Craig Gilbert wrote, longtime uh, political reporter uh, at the journal Sentinel, and uh, really diving into the congressional districts, uh, in particular their competitive district, their competitiveness, and looked at how these used to be extraordinarily competitive and there used to be a lot of back and forth, um, even up until the last 10 years where essentially there's been virtually almost no competitiveness and that there's really only even been one congressional district that was even considered competitive and that these new maps that were approved by the, the uh, US Supreme Court again, so these congressional maps are final and now has two competitive maps. And the article goes on to say, yeah, gerrymandering's a part of it, but it makes the argument that another major part of what is constraining the congressional maps is just the, the polarization of where voters are and that you have concentrations of, of Democratic voters in Milwaukee and Madison areas and that you're, you used to have in some of the rural areas, particularly Western Wisconsin, more diversity of, of voting, more split ticker, ticket voters, and also just more Democrats in some of those areas. And that particularly in the, the last five, six years of Trump, we've seen some of these rural areas uh, become less competitive for Democrats. And that those two things really have combined to make these congressional maps, this is what Gilbert asserts, less competitive uh, then, then say gerrymandering has a role. Robert, you dropped this in, and I know wanted to talk about this. I want to give you an opportunity to just fill out anything else or what you think is of great interest, and uh, we'll go back and forth because this is really critical, folks. Right? Like, I mean, we're supposedly a swing state, but the argument here is in a purple state that goes back and forth. We only can find and create two competitive congressional districts. It's pretty shocking. Um, indictment of our district process, I would say. Robert? Yeah, and Craig Gilbert, very good reporter, the DC Bureau Chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and uh, really is data-driven, so he does do stuff that political professionals pay attention to, major feature stories, and he's a good guy, but I'm glad Gannett, the owners of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, kept Craig, but his case is that the gerrymandering is not as a big, big a factor as one would think. In other words, as a, a default, that that's the whole thing, right? And he points out the growing urban-rural divide. So a lot of the uh, areas of Wisconsin outside of Milwaukee County and Dane County that are not suburban have become increasingly red, just in terms of partisan identification. I mean, the, the old Dave Obie district in north-central Wisconsin has moved 20 points in this century to the red. And then as Matt just pointed out, there's less ticket splitting than before. It used to be that you could pick up a seat 
with an eight, 10 percent partisan performance difference with split, split, uh, ticket splitters, that's no longer possible. So it's harder to win a district unless it is and uh, closer. And then, of course, there's been the map drawing on top of that. Uh, trying to obviously been set up over the last decade to create Republican majorities in Congress in a 50-50 state, which it's effectively done, but it's also been advantaged by the fact that the red population is more spread out in Wisconsin and the blue population highly concentrated. He points out the two districts that are competitive um, right now are the third congressional district, the seat that Ron Kind is um, vacating, and the fact that Tony Evers outmaneuvered the Republicans on the maps and, and uh, the congressional part's been approved. It's the state legislative that are uh, that, that are at risk right now and still in play uh, that the Evers maps actually made, made that still competitive, though it's gotten more Republican. It's still within reach, though it's a lean Republican. And the first CD, the old uh, Racine, Kenosha, Janesville seat has become more democratic. It always was naturally a swing area because of the, the blue concentrations in Racine, Kenosha, Janesville. Uh, it's become much more competitive for Brian Stiles because they added back Beloit and they pulled out Southern Waukesha County, a, a right-wing red bastion. And so there are, we actually have two, which is an increase, but we don't, the other five are completely uncompetitive. I would point out that um, gerrymandering of the legislature plays a role in all this because, and this is not mentioned by Craig Gilbert, because it actually uh, cuts off the farm team. That is to say, a lot of people who would be Democrat legislators uh, around the state are not because of the maps, and therefore they're not set up to run for Congress. And so it gives us much, a much more difficult problem recruiting for these races. So that's not something Craig Gilbert says, but I want to add that on. The maps matter a lot. He's indicating uh, CD3 and CD1 are competitive, partly because the maps uh, were cut in a way that they, they, they stayed so. The Republicans want to cut them so they were both much less competitive. But nonetheless, there are a lot of other factors and that we need this is not Craig Gilbert, me, to overcome the rural-urban divide, which is why Citizen Action organizes statewide. We also need to be very well aware that there are fewer ticket splitters, which I feel like the political strategists behind Tony Evers and some of the U.S. Senate caddies, Derek Christide, are not understanding. They really do need to rev up the base. There are very few ticket splitters left. Sure. Yeah, the last thing that um, I I thought about, um, because mostly Robert covered everything I was thinking, is that, um, you know, in the article, Craig Gilbert points to um, the former congressman Dave Obie in the north, northern, uh, north central part of the state as um, somebody who was a Democrat, but um, was in a, a very purple, um, very competitive seat and held that for a, a long time and in fact became one of the most powerful people in Congress, right? We know that as uh, chair of the Appropriations Committee. Um, but I thought about how, you know, I, I wonder what role Wisconsin losing a congressional seat um, a number of years ago has played in this. Um, because when Dave Obie had that seat, we had an extra congressional, um, some extra congressional seats, right? So um, when when he retired and that um, congressional, we lost congressional um, seats during um, 
uh, you know, the reapportioning of seats around the country um, as populations shift nationally. Um, I wonder if, you know, the, the redistricting choice was made to eliminate um, a, that seat up there in the north. And so that population of folks kind of got split between the sort of northeast and northwest more conservative uh, areas. And so there was just, you know, there's less pie to go around, as they say. And because of who was in power at the time, um, it, it created this opportunity to um, uh, you know, to skew things in favor of one party over the other. Um, if we had more seats, I think it might be easier to um, draw some things competitively. It doesn't, you know, it's not an excuse, right? I mean, certainly Robert has laid out for us um, how with the current number of congressional seats were allotted, we could have um, significantly more um, competitive districts um, or at least on balance, more competitive districts. Um, but it is, it is sometimes I think a challenge to compare because it's not always apples to apples, right? It's, it's kind of like apples to oranges. It's a different number of seats. And um, I, I don't, like I said, I don't think that's the, you know, the biggest, the biggest trend, certainly um, the growing urban rural divide and gerrymandering are the two biggest factors. Um, well, I mean, but I, but I do of, wonder what, what the difference that that made. Look, part of the assumption that Gilbert makes when he talks about it is he works within the Supreme Court once they decided that that'd be the state Supreme Court that we're going to have the least change, right? Like that, that constraint limits what you can do to break up some of the solidly blue Democratic areas. Where I will dicker with Gil Gilbert is, I mean, it doesn't seem like you need to move the line very much uh, between six and four. And that is uh, right on the northern Milwaukee border to bring in much more, make the sixth more democratic, make the fourth less democratic and create a, a, a competitive sixth. So you could then get something closer. That would be Craig my- Craig says that. He says if you split Madison and Milwaukee, you can potentially get more. So he does say- I, No, that. I'm not, I'm, Robert, I'm not saying split it. I'm saying just take a little piece of it, move the line down so you don't have massive change. He says split, yeah. And then not, according to the Supreme Court, that's radical change. I'm saying just move that line on the sixth mm -hmm. further into Milwaukee. So you just take a little bit more and take what is now a- you know, a solidly lean, you know, I think it's around eight or eight to 10 points and put it in play. The same thing mm -hmm. you did with the second, that wasn't done, right? And um, I'm assuming Evers folks thought that that might be too risky. So um, anyways, look, we got we to gotta take a break because uh, we got a break coming up here. And this is a great conversation. Um, Robert, I'm going to give you an opportunity for some final comments on the back end, and then we're going to be joined by Ben Wilson, our organizer in the Driftless area, who has a really, really exciting birthday event that uh, he's going to tell us more about. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, we're Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin, we're Citizen Action. You can find us all over the socials, whether you like, you know, your, your Twitter or whatever it's going to be, your Facebook, <laughs> your Instagram, you can find us there. Robert, some final comments. I, I wanted to give you an opportunity some final comments on the um, redistricting and the congressional maps before we go to Ben Wilson. Just on the urban-rural divide part, which Craig Gilbert in the previous segment we were discussing has identified and 
documented with data over the last 20 years. Um, I just add, when you say, when we say that, it makes it seem natural. I mean, it is something that's happening on, going on nationally, but it's not just something like, like a flood or some, some act of mm -hmm. nature. Democrats are not very good at appealing to those, to voters, rural voters anymore. And the, 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 the mainline democratic position that we should run as moderates, which is what they've been having Democrats do for years up there has not been working. And the lack of ticket splitting anymore over the last 20 years, the reduction of it tells you why. It's not moving people to stay in the middle of the road and to be uh, vanilla and seem safe. And that's why in 2016, the polling was consistent that Bernie Sanders would have performed better against Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton. Why is that? Because a lot of those voters want change. There, it's so, so that's a choice between right-wing populism of the Trump, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson variety, and or uh, or progressive populism. And so, but we need to prove case. In other words, we need to start running and winning progressive candidates in these areas. But as Craig Gilbert points out, it's really it's going to at this point in a lot of these maps with a lot of what the partisan divide is, it's going to be a matter of making progress and trying to get decent legislative maps because we've been, there's no reason this can't get any worse. We were being told that, Matt, five, six years ago, and it has. We need to stop the bleeding and start actually having a message that appeals in this area and legislators again that come from these areas. And I think the old Robert LaFollette populist progressive angle is the best way to do it, but too many mainline Democrat consultants are telling everyone it's the opposite and they're doing what is the definition of madness, keep doing what doesn't work. Well, we're, we're really fortunate to be joined by somebody who's trying to do something different and trying to actually uh, implement some of those visions that Robert was just talking about in a mostly rural area, the Driftless uh, area of Wisconsin. And so we're fortunate to be joined by Ben Wilson. He's the uh, co-op organizer for the Driftless area and also a local elected official in Viroqua. Ben, it's great to have you. It's great to be back, everyone. Yeah, we love having you on, Ben. And we have you on because you have stuff going on. And last time you were on around water, and by the way, Ben, I have to talk to you. Uh, there may be an opportunity for a water event for you to attend next week. I'll, I'll do that on the side. But Ben, you've got a big event coming up next week. Uh, uh, folks, you may have noticed it's Earth Day next week. Well, Ben's got an event in lacrosse around Earth Day. Ben, uh, tell our listeners more about what you got going on. Absolutely. As we face this climate crisis, we want to make sure that we're coming together to protect the future. And that's the name of our event, Protect the Future, Earth Day 2022. We want to stand out and make a statement that we celebrate everything La Crosse has done to address the climate crisis. They are, the city of La Crosse is truly a climate leader. But in order for them to hit their goals, we need to bring all the institutions in La Crosse along with us. And we need to have our schools, our businesses, even our big employers like Quick Trip have to create their own climate action plans so that they can all commit to a clean energy future by 2050. We're only going to reach that goal if we all work together and all of our institutions work together. So we're calling on schools across lacrosse to commit to 100% clean renewable energy by 2050. So that's that's very exciting. So you're give us the deets on 
the specifics of the event then that you're having on Earth Day? Absolutely. We're going to be meeting at Wygant Park in La Crosse at the corner of 16th Street and Cass at noon on Earth Day. We're going to start the day off with a uh, press conference featuring La Crosse's own mayor, Mitch Reynolds. After our press conference, we're going to have an upcycle clothing exchange. Uh, we want to reduce the impact fast fashion has on our, on our environment. So we want to keep clothes in rotation as long as we can to keep them out of landfills. So there's going to be an opportunity to get some free clothes, trade, old, trade away some old clothes. And we're even going to have a DIY workshop where we're going to teach folks how to make uh, grocery bags out of old t-shirts using a no-sew method. That's awesome. That is a great idea. Claire, I know you have a question for Ben. Yeah, that is so clever. So what led you to zero in on this idea of the, of the clothing swaps and the sort of schools as your focus of this event? Because those, those are so creative. <laughs> well, the credit for the up, Upcycle Clothing Exchange goes to the University of Wisconsin-Lacrosse's Sustainability Club. They are always looking for every way to reduce the amount of waste sent to lacrosse landfills. And they suggested an upcycle clothing exchange at a community event, and we loved it. It fits right in with our theme of protect the future. That's awesome. So, Ben, before you go, is there anything? Um, it also, look, let's let's be honest about this. This is a this is an awesome event, but part of what makes this event go is you know, your co-op, right? And that you've got lots of members, lots of people in lacrosse in the broader Driftless region in motion, in action, actively changing their lives, addressing some of the things that Robert was mentioning before about what people really want. Ben, let people know how and why they should get involved in, in not only this event, but join this co-op. We all need as a society to start coming together around our shared values to make those values a reality. If you're someone in the Driftless area who's just feeling listless and they feeling like there's no hope, get involved with the Driftless Co-op. Take action. Get out in your community. And you can actually affect the change that you want to see. And people should come out to the event so that they can join the climate movement in the Driftless community. The Driftless elected leaders have moved so far to fight climate change but we need to push them and our business partners and our schools to go even further. When we all come together, we can all create a great green climate future for everyone across the Driftless, across Wisconsin and across the world. Well, Ben, we really appreciate you coming on. Wanna thank you for the organizing, the work you're doing, building out membership in, in the region and uh, uh, putting on this uh, event on uh, Earth Day. I look forward to seeing everyone uh, who's in Southwest Wisconsin at Wygant Park on Earth Day at noon as we gather to celebrate and protect the future. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Ben. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, I just want to remind you, right, like Ben was talking about our, our organizing co-ops and there we call them organizing cooperatives and they're all over the state. And these are your way to get involved to be a member and uh you know take as ben said take a lot of the values and interests you want and uh, take them into action and so we have co-ops in the driftless area and eau claire and wausau southeastern wisconsin green bay fox valley the healthcare co-op 
building a, a cooperative on the north side of Milwaukee. So folks, please get involved. Again, we'll have a link for how you can join our organizing cooperative. But with that, we are going to transition. We have our guest. We are, we are joined by Tabita Chow. Tabita's been on this show many times and uh, we are thrilled to have him. And uh, Toby, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we have you on and I actually, we're gonna have you address a couple of subjects. Um, I wanna first mention um, for our listeners that you have an outstanding, um, I guess it'd be an editorial in, in These Times Magazine in the latest issue where you really try to talk about how, how should progressives respond, right, in this uh, situation, this war that's going on in Ukraine, that it provides a lot of complex questions. Toby, talk, we're, we, got a, we got about a minute and a half before the break, and we'll, we'll go deeper in after, but take the beginning just to tell us a little bit about what you lay out uh, in, in, in this uh, editorial. Yeah, so basically what I'm responding to is um, there are, I think, a lot of conflicting ideas and sentiments um, around Ukraine uh, among people who feel a lot of solidarity with Ukrainian people, and, and rightly so. Um, and some of those ideas and sentiments are being used by our political opponents for really dangerous ends to support uh, militarism and nationalism. And our political opponents have done this like very effectively to say that because of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, we need to double down on US nationalism and militarism and things like that. And uh, what I've seen is uh, sort of an understandable reaction from uh, many progressives uh, seeing the way that solidarity with Ukraine is getting used um, and reacting against that to sort of shy away from that sentiment of solidarity, which is so prevalent in our society right now. Um, and what, what I basically argue is that that's a mistake um, because it misses the fact that there are a lot of strong and very promising progressive ideas and sentiments uh, that are also part of solidarity with Ukraine. Uh, like uh, people are reacting to uh, this neo-fascist leader in Russia, Putin. Uh, they're reacting to, they're reacting against war and occupation. They're reacting in sympathy with refugees. And there is a lot of potential there for progressives to step in and really clarify and consolidate those sentiments um, and turn them into consistent principles that can then back uh, a really powerful progressive and internationalist politics and use this moment uh, to build that politics. Um, and I think that's the sort of response that we as progressives should have to this moment. Folks, we are talking with Tavita Chow. He's the director of Justices Global. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back for our final segment and talk, dive in with Tavita. Or listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking to Vita Chow. He is the director of Justices Global, and we're talking about the, the the war in Ukraine and progressives. I wanted to give our panel opportunity to ask a question. Robert, get the first question. So, uh, great to great to see you, Toby. Always. Um, let me just ask, uh, just to. Uh, dig in a little on your thesis. You're not taking the position that a small portion of the far left has that uh, somehow, you know, this, that this is all part of American imperialism and it's all America's fault, understanding that we can critique whether NATO should expand it all the way out here, that there really is something going on here with Putin and autocracy and, uh, and just 
trying to take over another power that 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 there are two sides here and that he is the aggressor and he is committing probably war crimes at least not sure it meets the definition of genocide or not though nor do i think the u.s can really speak to that without joining uh you know the international conventions and the court that actually decides these things at the un which it still refuses to do but what you're saying is we can't lean into an old Cold War foreign policy here because a lot of the coverage of it is about how many weapons we can get to Ukraine, you know, and uh, how many more people we can get into NATO because Finland and Sweden are expressing interest, especially Finland, as I understand it, um, that we actually do start thinking about a broader uh, kind of internationalist progressive vision here. And there are a lot of elements in, uh, in, in, in the whole Ukrainian-Russian fight that could help us speak to that and help us change aggression American foreign policy. Can you, so you could talk about that a little more as to what a progressive internationalism might look like and where, where some of the tie-ins are to Ukraine? Yeah, um, so yeah, we should not uh, embrace uh, the sort of Cold War response, um, which is, um, you know, it's out there, it's, it's, pr it's pretty prevalent. Um, but we should also uh, not uh, assume that that Cold War response is the only way of engaging in solidarity with the people of Ukraine and um, and, and, sh and sharply rejecting um, Putin's invasion. Um, I think uh, I think uh, some of the key um, progressive and internationalist principles that um, I think we can sort of make the argument for in this moment are. Um, um, you know, people are reacting to the horrors of the war um, with sentiments that are anti-war, um, anti-occupation. Um, people are looking at Russian society and seeing the problem of the Russian oligarchs. Um, and uh, people are, are asking themselves, like, what can we do for Ukraine? Uh, what can we do with Ukrainian people? And there's a lot of sympathy for Ukrainian refugees. They need to do more for them. Uh, there are calls, including from fairly mainstream figures, calling for... Um, uh, uh, canceling Ukraine's sovereign debt so the Ukrainian government can can function free of this burden of debt that they've accrued um, to the rest of the world. Um, and I think the opening for us here is to say like, yes, those are um, excellent proposals. Um, and we need to take seriously the underlying principles, which are um, anti-war, anti-occupation, um, which are about supporting refugees, which are about um, canceling the debts of countries undergoing uh, horrific crises, um, and uh, which are about um, uh, rejecting uh, the and, and tackling the power of of oligarchs of the of of the wealthy few and the and the and the way that they can power reactionary politics. And we need to understand that this isn't these principles don't just apply to the case of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there are systemic problems. We see these, we, we, we can apply these principles in a, uh, a broad range of great cases um, in countries across the world. And if we do that consistently, what comes out of that is a very, um, a very powerful uh, uh, progressive politics that's global in scope. Um, and I think that's the direction um, that we can, we can take things. Um, the other direction we can take things is to uh, take seriously uh, the question of Putin's ideology and what made it possible for Putin to come to power, to accumulate and concentrate so much power and to radicalize in this ideology 
that is um, just a very extreme form of Russian nationalism um, that uh, I think is nostalgic for some uh, vision of this lost Russian empire um, and involves like denying that Ukraine uh, deserves to be any kind of independent country and sees Ukraine's independence as somehow an affront to Russian identity. Um, that kind of extreme nationalism, um, we need a real analysis of it. We need to, we need to grapple with it seriously. Um, and I think when we do that, we see that uh, Putinism is part of a broader genre of far right, um, a nationalist and authoritarian uh, political ideologies, uh, and that this kind of politics has been on the rise around the world in countries around the world um, including here in the U.S., uh, in the person of Trump and the movement that, that he's been leading in the U.S., uh, a racist authoritarian movement. Um, Putin is a more extreme case. Uh, his ideology, I, I think, is more extreme than the other cases. He's also accumulated much more power um, than figures like Trump or other right-wing nationalists in other countries. Um, and so it's much more dangerous. Um, but it's not a unique thing. Um, and when we connect these dots, um, then um, uh, we, can, we can understand uh, the fight against Putin as part of this broader fight against far-right, racist, nationalist, authoritarian politics, which is also a fight we need to have here at home. Um, and yeah. Claire? And I was just going to say quick, there's also a story, I know we're going to start right now, concerning how we were very instrumental at a lot of our billionaires in the rise of Putin in the 1990s and the way we handled the fall of the Soviet Union. And that narrative is invisible to most Americans. But I know you know that, Toby. But uh, Claire, I don't want to step on Claire's lines. No, that's fine. I think everything you're saying is, uh, is really compelling. Um, I, I'm wondering what you would say to people who say, yes, that makes sense for a framework about how we should think about Putin, how we should talk about Putin. And there are things there like, you know, canceling the debt of Ukraine internationally that um, would be helpful. But, you know, what does what does that mean in the context of a war? And is that is that enough in the face of a war? So I'm curious what you would what you would say to somebody who who's like, is that is that enough? There's a war going on. Um, let's see. So uh, I think there are uh, there are some uh, uh, tough questions here about um, exactly what kinds of uh, support for Ukraine we should be in favor of, particularly when it gets into like military policy, um, which I didn't get into um, in the editorial. Um, I think. Uh, something that we should be very clear about is that uh, because of um, uh, the, the nuclear deterrent that Putin controls, um, uh, the ability of the U.S. to intervene directly, um, like that should, that should put a, that, that puts a hard limit on any kind of, of military support that we should be um, uh, willing to, to offer, even if like we wanted to. Um, and but like that said, I think that there are questions uh, that uh, are, are difficult for us as progressives about like, are, are there forms of military support that um, we would actually be in favor of to beat back this, what I would consider uh, like a neo-fascist invasion of uh, another country? Um, 
uh, that uh, we think can support uh, Ukrainian people's uh, right to self-defense um, without um, engaging in a dangerous escalation between the US and Russia, which we absolutely have to avoid. Um, and I don't have all the answers there, but I think that that is a, a difficult but important question. I mean, if there are just wars, Toby, right? And I come close at 99%, 90% of cases, I'm a pacifist, but it's hard to be one when you think about World War II and Nazi Germany. And this certainly fits into Christian just war theory. This is clearly a, a self-defense. So, but I think progressives not figured out a unified position on that, I don't think at all, or ha even had that discussion like we used to about pacifism in the 1940s and 1950s. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I also um, am not uh, a pacifist. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, there have been moments in the past where uh, the, the left has uh, supported um, um, wars of self-defense against uh, dangerous reactionary forces in the world. Um, and uh, I think that's a tradition worth taking seriously. Toby, we really, really appreciate that you were able to take the time to join us and that you wrote this piece and, and got it in and are driving this conversation. Um, before you go though, um, wanted to, uh, we have about 90 seconds or so, wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on, we've had you on it before to talk about when we, anti-China uh, sentiment and bashing that uh, seems to be going on. And we wanna give you an opportunity that we saw an Alex Lazary ad that you wanted to at least call out and get, have progressives, you know, understand what's at stake when we use rhetoric like this. Yeah, so there's an ad where uh, he's talking about, um, you know, I was going to fight for Wisconsin workers uh, if he wins his race for Senate. And um, part of his uh, pitch in this ad was um, uh, that he was going to get tough on China and like stop China. I find this very dangerous. Uh, two main points I want to make. Um, one, and a, a number of uh, Asian American groups have been um, raising this issue um, uh, across the country. One is that um, like scapegoating China for uh, challenges facing US workers um, ends up feeding racism against uh, people of Asian descent, people who you know, look Chinese, quote unquote. Democrats need to take that seriously. That's a real problem. The second uh, important point to make is that uh, this is a message which is going to tend to backfire because it feeds a core, core narrative strategy of Republicans this year. Um, they know their record on workers' rights is horrible and it's not gonna change. Uh, they support corporate power. They support attacks on workers' rights in unions across the board. Uh, despite that, they want to rebrand the Republican party as the party of the working class and a core part of their narrative strategy is to shift all blame for challenges facing workers away from corporate power, away from their alliance with corporate power and on to China. That's how they're going to um, do this pivot to claim that they are the party of the working class because they're tough on China. And they're gonna try and convince people that China is the, is the threat to workers and not anti-worker policies that they support in league with corporate interests. Um, Democrats who feed into this China bashing and China scapegoating narratives um, are doing the Republicans work for them and that's going to backfire on them. And there's research has been done to show this, it's very dangerous. So it's both racist and wrong and strategically uh, self-destructive. 
That was an excellent uh, analysis of, of those ads and the problem. Toby, we really appreciate you coming on. We will continue to track uh, both, both the war and what we were talking about, but also um, just how Democrats continue to handle the issue of China and, and what you just laid out there. Thank you so much, Toby. We really appreciate it you uh, for, for joining us. Thanks. I uh, love hanging out with my friends in Wisconsin. Thanks again. Oh, it's always great. All right, folks, we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We want to thank Toby Chow for joining us. And of course, want to thank Ben Wilson, our organizer in the Driftless area for telling us about his Earth Day event. Folks, we got to run. Thank you so much, Claire. Claire, Claire, Claire. Last show. We just deeply appreciate you. So very, very, very much and wish you the very best in the Cavalier Johnson administration. So thank you so much, Claire, for being on the show for all these years. Thank you. Thank you, Matt and everybody. Awesome. All right, folks, we got to roll. We'll see you next week. We will roll on here in Wisconsin at the Battleground. Bye.